The gospel of Matthew is Matthew telling the story of Jesus, the good news of Jesus. If it's not taken in context, look out. There can be a danger, all right? So with that in mind, let's read Matthew chapter 17, beginning in verse 14. When they came to the crowd, a man came up to him, this is Jesus, and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. Father, give us wisdom on an intriguingly difficult passage of Scripture. May we understand how it flows in the story of your son, Jesus. So may your spirit awaken minds and enliven hearts and apply this to us. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you Remember from last week, we looked at Matthew chapter 16, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, because it is Jesus launching the church. Perhaps you remember that, where Jesus goes to a very important spot, Caesarea Philippi, right in front of the temple to Pan. Who's Pan? Pan is the god of panic sex. We talked about him last week. Really, really bad God. He's half man, half goat. When you see an American representation of Satan, it is most often the God Pan. Little horns, funny legs, that's what we use. So he represents Satan. Jesus says, right here is where where we're starting church, in Pan's temple. We're reclaiming what is rightfully mine. We're going to storm the gates of hell. I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind will be bound. It's just this incredible chapter of power. Like, I'm going to win, Jesus says. The gates of hell will not prevail against this thing I'm forming, the church. So you read chapter 16 and you're just stoked. You're like, yes. And then the disciples go from there. Jesus grabs three of them, goes up on a mountain we'll see on Wednesday, the Mount of Transfiguration, and he just glows like a billion watt light bulb. And they're like, yes! They hear a voice from heaven. They see Moses, they see Elijah. They're on the very top. This is one of the pinnacles of the gospel of Matthew. It's like uh, Prairie Home Companion. You ever listen to that? Lake Wobegon, right? 
where all the women are strong and all the men are good looking and all the children are above average. I don't know how you do that. What's the average then? Well, it just went up, but they're all above average, right? It's like that. It's like, man, the IPO is flying. My, my business is booming. My kids are obeying. What is going on, right? It's that kind of moment for them. So you have this incredible pinnacle. That's the context. And then we come right here to verses 14 through 20. And it's like wet water on a fire. Power, kingdom, storming the gates of hell, man of transfiguration. Yes, yes, yes. And then you have this epic fail right here in verses 14 through 20. Whenever I read the Bible, here's what I try to do. I try to put myself into the characters that I'm reading. So I imagine for a second, I am one of the nine disciples that are sitting there. Jesus with the three are up on the mountain and I'm waiting there. And this dad comes up to us. He recognizes we're part of Jesus's crew. And he has this son that's scarred, has just burn marks on his body. And this dad is saying, can you guys please help me? Please help me. And you remember chapter 16. Hey, we've been given keys to the kingdom. What have we bind? Is bound? What have we loose? Is loose? Then remember chapter 10 where they actually went out and cast out demons. And so they're thinking, no problem. Yes, we can help your son. And so they get ready and they do their thing, whatever it is. Maybe they lay hands on him. Maybe they use the name of Jesus. Maybe they rebuke. Maybe, I don't know what they do. They do something and it fails. And so they start over and they try again. And now there's a crowd kind of gathering around and they're watching this and they say something and they try again and they fail. And maybe another disciple's like, hey, 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 give me a shot at this. And then he tries and he does his thing and the crowd is getting bigger now and the dad's getting worrieder and the kid just falls on the ground and has this seizure and he's foaming at the mouth and it just fail and they give up. That's chapter 17. Doesn't feel like Lake Wobegon, does it? Feels like Lake Selmak. <laughs> a little different if you've been there. <laughs> the people are not above average. <laughs> That's what it feels like. Like what just happened right here? What just happened? Who hasn't felt that way? Who hasn't read something or been told something that sounds like chapter 16 and you are excited and you're expectant and then you have a chapter 17? Which believer in here has never experienced that? We all have. We've all, almost all of us have been like this dad probably. We thought, if I just do these things with my kids, they're going to turn out right. If I tell them bed stories about the Bible, they're going to turn out right. If I homeschool them, they're going to turn out right. If I bring them to the youth group, they'll turn out right. If I just um, muster up enough faith for them, they'll turn out right. If I don't homeschool them, they'll turn out right. If I private school them, they'll turn out right. If I give them an iPhone, they'll turn out right. If I don't give them an iPhone, they'll turn out right. If I give them an Android, right? We all have this kind of formula where we think, if we just do these things, then everything's going to be Matthew chapter 16. And most of us, I'm guessing, that are above the age of two have found Matthew chapter 17. What? Failure. What? Unbelievable. Maybe we've even done chapter 10. Or we've had victory and seen great things happen, but inevitably for every one of us, we're going to hit, just like these disciples did, Matthew chapter 
17. That's why context is so important. If not, here's what you do. I call it selective scriptural syndrome. You'll camp on just chapter 16 and then you will be disappointed in life. Do you know that? If you do not get the entirety of what the Bible is trying to say and you just camp on one little text for yourself, you will be disappointed just like these disciples. You'll feel shame. You'll wonder what happened. Am I broken? Is it the, am I the problem? You will all face this, right? I, I, I found this with my kids really early. This is my best illustration of selective scriptural syndrome. Uh, it was 10 years ago. My kids were real small. Uh, my wife was important. So I took just my two older girls and we went to the family fun center. Such an awesome place. When they're like four, it's like Disneyland. So I go there. I use all my money, like 60 bucks, 50 bucks, whatever it was. And then I show my daughters, listen, I'm out of money. My two daughters, Carissa and Isabella, they looked at me, they put their hands on their hips and they said, dad, just take your card and get more, (laughs) right? I said, you've been hanging out with your mom too much. My goodness. See, they only have half the story. It's just like, no, you just take this card and put it in this machine. But they don't realize, no, you got to have a job. You got to save money. You got to be responsible so that you can take that card and put it in the machine and get money. Well, too often, I think we just, you just put the card in. No, there's a whole other side. So that's why context is so important. It balances. So I want to mention three things fairly quickly that are dynamics in this text that are really important for you to balance for you to balance. So dynamic number one is just the disciples. It'll hold. (laughs) Chapter 16, please. (laughs) First, the disciples. You got these nine guys that are down here. They've walked with Jesus two and a half, three years at this point. They see a dad with trouble. Man, I think they had the best of motives. I don't think they were off. I think they truly wanted to help out. Who wouldn't want to help this situation? So they attempt, they fail, they feel great shame, they quit. But here's the worst part. Jesus comes back and what does he say to them? Verse 17, you faithless and twisted generation. How long do I have to be with you? Imagine that for a second. Your hero, your master, the one you just realized chapter 16 is God himself has just called you a faithless and twisted generation. How long do I have to put up with you? That's brutal. In chapter 17, verse 20, he says, you of little faith. The little there, and then then he amplifies it. If your faith was like a grain of a mustard seed to a Jewish mind 2000 years ago, a mustard seed was as small as it got. We would say um, electron sized faith. If you had faith like the size of an electron, you could move a mountain, right? I mean, this is brutal. Imagine how they feel right now. They don't feel good, right? Now, some commentators say this. If you read them, they'll say, what these disciples needed is they needed more faith, right? And a lot of times they get that because of verse 21. But guess what? In my Bible, which is the English Standard Version, I don't have verse 21. Who here has verse 21? Okay, who here does not have verse 21? All right, here's what happened. There are these manuscripts from where we get our Bible. There's about 5,000 of them. They're really good. Every once in a while, there's a debate about certain kind of text. Verse 21 is one of those. Was it in the original or was it not? 
So a group of really good people that love Jesus and want to see his kingdom advance said, yes, it's there. And then a group of really good people that love Jesus and want to see his kingdom advance said, no, I don't think it's there. So they made a decision, right? So the guys that made a decision know, say, the oldest and best manuscripts that we have don't have them. Can what, what can happen to his manuscript is this. You have it, and sometimes guys would add a little note. They just add something in there like, hey, here's a little note. Well, the next guy that copies it would be like, hey, I like that note. He'd add it too. Maybe he'd forget the parentheses. So then it became part of this text family for everyone that copied it from that point forward. So that's the decision someone had to make here. I think verse 21 did not exist in the original manuscript. I think it's right. So when it is there, though, you start making these decisions like, well, what they needed was more faith. And that, for me, always bothers me. Maybe I'm hypersensitive to this, but I just think, how in the world do you muster up more faith? How do you do that? Can anyone tell me how you can possibly muster up more faith? I don't know. I think it's extremely difficult. I think it's impossible. Here's why. If, if you know my story, I'm going to tell you it. There's a period of time where I just jumped back into the things of Jesus. I strayed for a bit. In college, I just said, I'm on. Like I had a shirt. The shirt said this. In the 90s, there was a tagline for the Visa card. It said, Visa it's everywhere you want to be. Remember that? Okay, I had a shirt that said this, Jesus, he's everywhere you want to be. I wore that shirt around. Like I was that guy. Just on fire. My junior year, I'm looking at what to take for my spring term. And there was this class called Jesus Seminar, Philosophy 390. I thought, oh my goodness, I get to go to school and learn about Jesus? This is the best day ever. So I signed up for Philosophy 390. Well, my professor is this guy named Marcus Borg fascinating individual. He was part of what's called the Jesus Seminar, and they would vote on what the Bible said and what it did not say, just an interesting crew. I knew none of that. I just knew I get to study the Bible. So I show up week after week, and I bring my Bible. Like literally, I have my Bible open. I'm reading it. Well, Marcus Borg, by the third week, he had said he's a Christian. Um, I I can't judge him on that, but by the third week where you can no longer drop the class without getting a big W on your transcript, the third week he dropped his first F-bomb. I thought, wow, It's not normally what I hear from Christians. I have occasionally, but that's interesting. As a professor, I've had non-believing professors and never heard an F-bomb dropped in class. So it was a three-hour block on Tuesday night, and we would go rounds, me and him. There's about 20 students, and it was me and him. I would have my Bible open. He'd be talking about something about Jesus, and I knew the Bible well enough to be like, wait, wait, wait. And I would turn to a verse, and I would read him the verse in my Bible. And this is what he'd say to me, Mr. Heverly. Um, here's what we know. We know that in Aramaic, Mr. Heavily, do you know Aramaic? No, I do not know Aramaic, Professor Borg. Okay, well, what we know is that the Aramaic used there did not exist until the second century. So it would have been impossible for Jesus to have said that. If you learned Aramaic, you would know this, Mr. Heavily. And we would do this week after week after week. Here's what happened to me. He systematically dismantled my faith in Jesus and my faith in the Bible. That's what happened to me. And so I did what I thought I should do. I turned to the church. And I went to the church, and here's what I found in the church. I had great, great doubts. And what I found in the church was this. I essentially got one of two answers. When I would come just broken, I'd be like, help me. Number one answer was this. Matt, you just need more I'm like, duh, 
I know, that's my problem, right? If I could force more faith, I would totally force more faith. I don't want to feel this way. I don't want to believe this way. I'm not doing this as an excuse to sin. I took this class and I need help. And now you're telling me that what I need is more faith. I know that. I don't have it. I can't muster it up. I don't think people realize how devastating that statement is to somebody who is struggling with doubt. It is devastating to you. That was answer number one. Do you just need more faith? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Answer number two was this. You need Yes. I knew there's a problem with this thing. We looked at it just about five minutes ago. So it may do it again. I'll repeat myself. It's a beautiful day. I can repeat myself. So solution number one was you just need more faith devastating. Solution number two was you just need to do more. You need to read more of your Bible. So I'd say, okay, so I'm reading five chapters a morning now. You tell me if I read six, everything's good? Seven, eight. What, what, what's the number? Because I will do it. Where's the number that if I do more Bible, that'll help me? You need to pray more. Okay, so I'm praying a half hour. 35 minutes, 50 minutes. What's the number, right? You need to serve more. Okay, I am serving. What, what more do I need to serve? You need to be filled with the Spirit. Okay, I'm going to like be like, I, I, it's really hard for me to stand still, but I may have to. <laughs> so what do I do? Right? It was a, here's the formula. If you just do these things, everything will work out. Well, here's what I'm t- here to tell you. There's no formula for faith. There's not one. If you have one, please give it to me because we will then convert the world. Right? Just do these things. Okay. That's it. Friction or just there was anointing. And I'm just like, nah, I didn't get it, right? Just, just not getting it. So I did that phase, and I went to this one church, and the, the pastor did this to me. He goes, Matt, there's inside of you a black box. There's a black box. And I'm like, what does that mean? I mean, what does that mean? Does it mean I'm damaged goods? I, mean, wh- I don't want a black box there. Get the black box out. I came to you for help, right? That does not help me to tell me I have a black box. There's these answers. I was just like so crushed by some of the answers I was given. So then I said, okay. Parachurch. I'm going to start going parachurch. I want to talk to people that are maybe on the outside looking in. And, and part of me is apologetic during this time because I have a very intense side to my personality. If you know me well enough, the intensity will come out. And so at this point, I'm a senior in engineering. I've got a lot of science behind me, a lot of applied science, a lot of just scientific knowledge. I know the Bible very well. And there was like a moment where I just stopped doing this because I realized what I was doing to people. I went to this meeting. I go there, and, and the meeting goes on. At the end, I said, hey, I'd love to set up a time and, and meet with you. If, if I could, I got some questions. And I, and I was talking to the guy that was doing the main teaching there. He goes, oh, fire. I said, okay. I said, I'm having trouble with the Aramaic of Matthew and the Greek of Luke in trying to reconcile the Sermon on the Mount and those two. And, and then I have another problem with the events of the Last Supper, and then I'm really struggling with the geological strata according to a young earth creationist. Could you help me with those? And this guy just looked at me like, are you Satan? (laughs) He's praying for the rapture. Can I get out of here? This is what he did. He literally looked over. He had this assistant. He goes, Bill, can you handle this one? I'm like, oh, Bill, poor guy. So I just said, you know what? I'm not doing this anymore. 
And for about two years, what I did with all my doubt, as I just kind of crushed it into the back of my head, just said, you know, I'm just going to ignore it. And, and I didn't do like crazy stuff and get on drugs, but I just checked out. Checked out of the things of the Lord. Didn't really go to church. Just had no interest in it. And just tried to bury all my doubts. But the problem with that is this. Doubt is like mold. It grows in the dark. It just grows. And either you're going to deal with it or it's going to grow and consume you. That's what's going to happen. So I would say this to you. If you're a disciple that feels maybe a little bit like these guys, a little failure, a little wondering, a little like, what happened to us? I don't have any faith. Doubt is not a dirty word. And we don't tell people that come here with doubts or questions, you just got to believe. We say, hey, let's talk. Doubts need light. Doubt needs truth. Doubt needs conversation. Here's what I believe now. Doubt is the antibody for faith. If you want to know how to get faith, you got to go through some doubt. That's the truth of it. And great men, listen to me, great men of the Bible doubted. Do you know that? John the Baptist, we taught through Matthew chapter 11. Dennis, or James Dennis did. In Matthew 11, John the Baptist sends two disciples to Jesus and they ask Jesus this, are you the one? John the Baptist in jail wants to know Jesus, are you the one? I'm so surprised Jesus did not answer by saying, Jay the B, <laughs> buddy, are you kidding me? You've got doubts? Your mom gave birth to you when she was 149. When I'm in my mom's belly and you're in your mom's belly and they meet, you do a backflip. Your mom was like, oh, great. I got a wild child. He's going to grow up and eat bugs or something. You baptize me. The heavens open. You hear God's voice. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. John, hell for you. What does Jesus do? He says this, verse 11. There is none greater born of women than John the Baptist. Doubting in jail, John the Baptist, none greater born of women. That's an interesting take on doubt. Interesting, isn't it? How about the disciples? How many times, right here it says, because of your little faith. How many times does Jesus say to his disciples, you guys have little faith? Well, he does it in Matthew chapter 6, verse 30. Matthew chapter 8, verse 26. Matthew chapter 14, verse 31. Matthew chapter 16, verse 31. Right here, and we're only halfway through one of the gospels. He says it so often, it just becomes their nickname. Like they hear a little faith, they're like, what? What do you want? <laughs> me? You need me? Well, Matt, that's before the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. Then they stop doubting. Yeah? Really? If you want to, turn to Matthew 28. Listen to this. I'll read it for you. Matthew 28, verse 16. Jesus, crucified, buried three days, resurrected. These are his 11 disciples, right? One of them's gone now. Now, verse 16, Matthew 28. The 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. I mean, can you believe that? I can yeah. Like they're sitting there going, well, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I got a brother in Vegas that can do that kind of stuff. I'm just not sure, you know, <laughs> right? You're like, wow. That's not a dirty word. 
Doubt can be the antibodies that create in you faith. On this side of those two and a half years or so of doubt and real darkness, I'll tell you on this side, I'm real happy because it created in me something that can never be taken away. And I don't know if there is another way to do it. I don't know if there is. But it was really for me personally and the way my brain is wired, I needed that. I needed it. It was the antibody that created in me faith. So that's dilemma number one. Notice the disciples. They doubt it. They understood. It was Matthew 16, Matthew 17, hard, difficult, but oh, so necessary. Number two, I want you to notice this, and I'll be much quicker now. I want you to notice the dilemma of the devil. Look at verse 18 says. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Who had been hurting this boy? Not a trick question. In this instance, the answer is not Jesus. Normally, you can answer Jesus to any question in church. It's a demon. Jesus said to the demon, get out of them, right? And it came out. He rebuked it. What was hurting this boy was a demon. As believers in the 21st century in America, yeah, it is just like a bit frightening here. As believers in the 21st century in America, we must never forget there is a spiritual dimension. There are good forces, angels, and bad forces, demons, and the devil. Do not forget that. But wait, Matt. I thought Jesus defeated the enemy. I thought the cross was it. Okay, here's how I explain this. Here's how I explain where we're at right now theologically. If you know history, in World War II, there was a really bad dude. What was his name? Hitler. And he had a really bad people, his henchmen, right? And they did really, really evil stuff. Well, there was a battle in World War II that turned the entire war. Do you know what that battle was? Normandy. When the Allied forces invaded Normandy and took those beaches, historians say the war was over. There was no chance now of the evil Hitler and his henchmen to win. But guess what? The war did not end then. The war went on for another 18 months as the Allied forces moved forward, taking territory and pushing the enemy back until finally they had defeated him completely. All right? Here's where we're at. Calvary was our Normandy. Battle's over. The decisive battle was done. We will win. However, we're in that 18-month time right now. And if you know history, the 18 months that went from Normandy until the defeat of Hitler were the bloodiest in all of World War II. There was nothing more dangerous nor more bloody during that time because he knew he was a defeated man. And he's going to take out as many people as possible. That's where we're at right now. We're in that period right now. Yes, the decisive victory has happened. But you know what? There's still an enemy. And he still hurts people. And he's still really bad. 
Never forget this. If you're interested in this, I just finished a book. It's called Reviving Old Scratch. Just came out in May. It is a good kind of primer on the way the enemy works. And it's a kind of a testimony of this guy. He's a, he's a PhD guy that stopped believing in the enemy, started working in prisons as part of his ministry and started saying, nah, there's an enemy, right? Another book that's really good, but it's old, it's called The People of the Lie by M. Scott Peck. That name should ring a bell because M. Scott Peck, if you're a little bit older, he wrote a book called The Road Less Traveled, became like a bestseller. Well, the people of the light is so fascinating because he's a PhD dude, works in academia, works with all these kind of people. And he says this, here's the greatest single problem of evil is that we don't believe it exists. It's not the sins it causes, it's that we don't believe it exists. So he was a, um, uh, a psychologist. So he's dealing with people. He's like, because we won't admit evil exists, we are taking away our greatest asset in defeating evil in people's lives. Just a fascinating book. He goes, we're, we're people of lie now. We believe this lie, and now we're unable to actually help people. Please, please never forget there is a kingdom that is bent against the kingdom of light. The Bible calls it the kingdom of darkness. It's over and over. It's all the way from Genesis 3 to Revelation 19. Two kingdoms clashing. Two powers. Listen to how John puts it. It's 1 John 5, 19. He says this, the whole world lies under the power of the wicked one. The whole earth is under the power of the wicked one. Now, our job as gospel kingdom kids is to push back against that power. And we do that through things like safe families and foster care and missions and miracles and prayer and Bible study and good works. There's all these ways we push back against it. But never forget, there is a real enemy. He's after us. Be aware of it. Well, how do I do that? Number three. Dilemma number three is this. I just call it the dance. Never forget the dance. Jesus, verse 20 is really interesting. It's an enigma to me. Because Jesus says this. Because of your little faith, because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard, smaller faith, you would say to this mountain, be moved and it would go. What is he saying there? You have little faith, but if you had just a tiny bit of faith, you could do incredible things. It's an enigma of a verse. We often just pass it up. It's a very strange verse. And I think here's how I explain it to myself, okay? Faith is not faith in faith, is it? It's not just like this quantity Faith is put into something, is it not? You have faith in God. You have faith in Jesus. I drove here because I put faith in my Volkswagen bus. Not a good place to put faith, right? You have faith in something, all right? So here's my analogy, and I'll try to explain this, and then we're done. Um, cooking analogy. Most of us, we all have our specialty, right? Whatever it is. Mine is trout, almondy, and a light Dijon mustard sauce. You have your specialty, and you know this. You can make that at any time. You know the ingredients. You know how much. You know how to mix them. You know the order. You know how long to cook it. It's your specialty. You don't need to consult anyone. You just know this is what I do. What happens, though, if you say, I want to cook something new? What do you do? You YouTube your favorite chef, right? 
How did he do it? And then you just follow the steps. Like, okay, he does that. Okay, okay. Because you know, I have faith in this chef and he almost always does things well. So I'm going to just do what this chef tells me to do. All right. Now applying that to this dance, Luke adds something to this text I think is real important. He says, this one doesn't come out by, but by prayer. He adds the term prayer. Here's what I think happened. This is just me. This is a little bit of conjecture, but this is what I think. I think the disciples, these nine, because of chapter 10, because of chapter 16, they felt like, we got this thing. We can handle this. And so they went into their formula, if you would. They kind of, hey, we'll just do this and wave our hands and rebuke, and it's going to be beautiful. But they didn't. I don't think. They didn't pray. And because they didn't pray, what they were saying is this. We got this one. See, prayer shows us that we're dependent upon someone else. Not my power, not my formula. I'm dependent upon God. And that's what the Bible says over and over. I can do all things through Christ that strengthens me. With God, nothing shall be impossible. With God, one shall chase a thousand. And with God, two shall chase 10,000. Over and over, what you see is there's this dance. And I call the dance this. It's a dance of both daring and dependence. God wants daring people that will say, yes, let me help you to broken children and busted up families. But at the same time, God says, you got to be dependent upon me. You won't be able to do this unless you're dependent upon me. And when you are, you will know you're dependent upon God by one thing, prayer. God, I need help. It's your YouTube. God, I don't know how to do this. I'm not relying on my thing, my formula, my way of doing it. I need your help in this situation. I think that's where they failed. It's that dance of daring dependence. God, you can use me greatly, but I need your strength and I need your power. So maybe here's how it works out. About um, a month ago now, I shared this on Wednesday night, but I had the strangest counseling session I've ever had in my life. So it was a, um, a recommendation from a guy I really like, uh, a guy that understands both the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And he works a lot in that field here in Grants Pass. Educated, smart dude. He sent me this email. It was between me getting back from Israel and I was getting ready to take off to school in Portland. And he said, I've got this gal and I think she needs to meet with you. She needs something from you. And so because of my relationship with him and what I know he does in our community, I said, okay, I can fit her in Friday afternoon. So met with her. Um, We sit down. And within 10 minutes, I just realized she is really hurt. This precious saint has really, really been hurt. And it just crushes me to see people hurt. It's, it's like I felt like she was almost like this boy, just burned up by the enemy. And, and as we're talking, all of a sudden, she takes her fist and she hit herself in the head about a dozen times as hard as she could. And we're in this little room, and there's nothing in between us. She's sitting in that chair. I'm sitting in this chair. I'm just with, I could touch her if I wanted to. And she's hitting herself in the face. And so, obviously, I dealt with that. Started talking about that. Lots of just kind of, uh, in her. Um, To make a long story short, after an hour and a half, um, she said, I just want you to pray for me. 
And what I said to her was this, and I felt, it wasn't a formula. I just felt like, no, I'm not gonna pray for you. And she kind of got upset at that. Well, why aren't you? You're supposed to, that's your job, right? I said, here's why. I said, I don't think it's gonna work. You need to pray. And she said, I'm not praying. I will not pray. And so I said, well, if you won't pray, I'm not gonna pray. And so she then just said, Lord, help me. I said, that's not gonna do it. I said, if you're gonna pray, I said, I want you to pray and I don't want you to use the word Lord and I don't want you to use the word just. The reason why I said that is because I want it to be a thoughtful prayer. And we get into these formulas in our prayer. And by forcing her to think about not using these two words, what it causes you to do is actually be thoughtful in your prayer. Don't use those words. Talk to him. Let your spirit commune with his spirit. Open yourself up in that way. She just said, I'm not doing it. I said, well, then I'm not either. And we sat there and we stared at each other for about a minute in this tiny little room. much longer than that. And finally, she just gave up, and she starts to pray. It was the best prayer I've ever heard in my life. She's crying, probably eight minutes long. I'm crying. She's just letting it out. Her spirit was communing with God's spirit, family, fellowship. And then I just grabbed her hand, and then I prayed for her. I went to Portland, came back, had two letters in my box from her. She said, Matt, Saturday morning, I woke up, I have never been so free in my life. The other letter was just, thank you, thank you, thank you. I then got an email from the guy that had, has been working with her for quite some time. He just said, what happened with this lady? She's transformed. She's something different. That's what I'm talking about. Not a formula. It's spirit-led. God, what are we supposed to do in this situation? I'm YouTubing you right now. You're the chef. I'm just cutting up the stuff. I'm the, I'm the, what is it, the prep chef or sous chef. I'm, that's all I am. Help me, lead me. It's that dance. And I'm not saying it's gonna happen overnight. This lady had been having work with her for quite some time. I just happened to be the period on it, all right? My thing, my dance was two and a half years, at least. But you keep dancing. Lord, daring dependence. God, I want, I need, I'm going forward. I know there's going to be a Matthew 16, but there's also going to be a Matthew 17, but it's for my good. It's to strengthen me. It's to increase me. That's the Christian life. And it's all preparation, I believe, so that you and I become the kind of people that can rule and reign with Jesus for eternity. It takes it both. So that's why you need Matthew 16 and Matthew 17. Amen? So we make the offer as we do every single Sunday. Two things, baptism and prayer. Maybe you came here today and you have doubts. I've got mine right now. <laughs> you've got doubts. Maybe you've been plagued by them. Maybe you've been given poor answers from people like I was. Come down here. Galatians 6, 1 says this, that you that are spiritual bear the burdens of other people. I'll tell you, there was a conversation I had with my brother-in-law. I still know it to this day on the steps in front of my mom's house that was transformational for me during that two and a half year period. He just had the right thing to say. Sometimes we need that. And he prayed for me. If you need prayer, get prayer. Maybe for healing, maybe for sickness, maybe for whatever. We'd love to pray for you. We want to pray for people. So right over here, pray for you. And we also always have baptism ready. Because there are people that have come here today 
And you need to make that decision that says, I want to be marked as part of the people of Jesus. I say this, that baptism does this. It's like wearing a jersey or putting on a wedding ring. You you wear the jersey because it identifies you as, hey, I'm not team Satan, I'm team Jesus. And really, at the end of the day, there's only two kingdoms. You will either be in the kingdom of darkness or you'll be in the kingdom of light. Baptism marks you, it puts a jersey on if you would, and it marks you as kingdom of light. It's like a wedding ring. It tells everybody, I belong to somebody else. I belong. That's what baptism does. It's that mark and it's obedience because Jesus says that we are to go into all the world and we are to be making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Throughout the book of Matt, book of Matt. (laughs) There's no book, praise God. (laughs) I'm not even going to explain myself on that one. There's no explanation. (laughs) It was Satan that did it to me. Kingdom of darkness. (laughs) I'm kidding. Um, Throughout the book of Acts, over and over, there's this repeated line, repent and be baptized. They go hand in hand. Repent, turn away from your junk, turn to God, and be marked now as part of his people in baptism. So if you need prayer, right here you need baptism, right here. It's our privilege to come alongside you in that way. So Father, I pray for us this day. I thank you for this incredible overcast day where I can go long. I thank you for the people of faith that have gathered here today. I thank you, Lord, that you are so good in giving us the right chapter 16s with the proper chapter 17s because they keep us in that dance the daring, dependent dance of faith. I ask, Lord, that those in here that are seekers, questioners, doubters, wonderers, may they find answers. May they find the truth that sets them free. May they find that your word and your way explain life correctly. May we be a congregation that is open to walking with and helping and enabling people through their doubts. I pray, your Lord, that we would really see the kingdom, that we would know that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places, and that we would put on the full armor of God, that we'd be armored up ready for the battle today and tomorrow and this week, knowing that you are victorious through us. And may we, Lord, continue to be a faith-filled people because of our faith put in you, not because we muster up great things, not because we are able to regurgitate something, but because of who we have believed in. That's what's great. It's you and our belief in you. So walk with us this week, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys.